Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, Jill Winebanks, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. Today, we will be discussing the latest in the Trump investigations and indictments, also how state Republican officials are trying to subvert voter power, and the newly announced special counsel in the Hunter Biden case. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Remember to go to politicon.com slash merch as well to buy your shirts like my t-shirt that I'm wearing right now, totes and other goodies while summer is still summering. And we have so much to get to. We all had to turn on a dime uh, because a lot of breaking news was happening as we were prepping for this. But before we get to that, I would like to talk about another bit of very important news. Our own Watergate girl, Jill (laughs) Winebanks, was honored by the American Bar Association with the 2023 Margaret Brent Women Lawyers of Achievement Award. She was feted, and we are so proud of you, Jill. Congratulations. Congratulations, Jill. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. It's embarrassing to talk about, but it was really a lovely ceremony, really well choreographed, and um, there are five winners this year, and the other four included Melissa Murray, who is, of course, our friend and colleague from MSNBC, um, Chief Justice of the Hawaii Supreme Court, who I have mm-hmm. um, con- consoled and written to um, because we became friends there without any knowledge of what was happening in Hawaii. Um, mm. So it was it was an extremely great group of women, and the audience was really wonderful. And I was joined by my grand goddaughter, um, three former presidents, well, an incoming president, Mary Smith of the ABA, two former presidents, one of whom was also um, a justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, you guys, uh, Dennis Archer, also your former mayor, and the first um, the defense counsel in my first solo trial, Dennis Archer, um, and Laurel Bellows, who is a dear friend from Chicago, but also a former, uh, and it, it was the, the best part of it, if I could just say, was reading the letters of support that Michelle Thorne, who put this nomination together, got from people. It's sort of like hearing your obituary <laughs> while you're still alive. I heard all these wonderful, <laughs> nice things. It was, it was phenomenal, including from one of my personal heroes, Hillary Clinton, who supported my nomination. Wow. And yeah, that was pretty, I thought it was pretty impressive to have all these That's bar presidents. That's a big and, deal. Yeah. And they put together a, a movie about each of the winners that included my college roommate um, and uh, Richard Benvenista, my Watergate partner, um, and photographs from all parts of my life with wonderful hairdos. Oh my God, really <laughs> horrendous. We have to be goofy. We need a couple of shots of the hairdos in the show notes. Never horrendous. Yeah. Jill Winebanks has always been one of the most fashionable, stylish humans on the planet. Like, let's tell it like it is. Yeah, I want to see those so 70s true. hairdos. <laughs> yeah. You, I'll, wait till you see my law school graduation picture. Oh my God. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, that is really amazing, Joe. We're very proud of you. You know, I I've done a little work with the ABA over the years, and I have to say, it's it's you are a legend in that organization. <laughs> Everyone has Thank so much. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today, and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh oh oh! O'Reilly Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Well, we saw a number of developments this week in the Trump indictments, plural, On Friday, the court in the election interference case in the District of Columbia, that's Judge Chutkin, held a hearing about a proposed protective order. And if we're going to be arguing about protective orders, I think we can see that these cases are going to be anything but routine. Joyce, I'm sure you've dealt with protective orders in criminal cases. Uh, What is a protective order and why would the government want it in this case or in any other case? Yeah, you know, this is such a good question, Barb, because I think sometimes um, prosecutors and lawyers generally are guilty of assuming everybody knows what we know. Protective orders are so routine, so basic that we've glossed over it. But here's the bottom line. In a criminal case, and this is also true in many civil cases, parties turn discovery over to each other. And in criminal cases where the government is turning over its evidence, which it's required to do so a defendant can have due process, some of that information needs to be very carefully guarded. There are, there are some you know prototypical situations. In my mind, the most important one is, such, is uh, evidence that could involve the safety of a witness. Something as simple as putting out into the public domain a witness's, say, home phone number or address could result in serious consequences for them. There were cases before courts got aggressive about protecting personally identifying information where witnesses were exposed to identity theft. But also there's a more general reason, which is that cases are meant to be tried in courtrooms, not in the public. And you don't want defendants going out. And of course, with Trump, it's an extreme case because he just has this large megaphone strapped to his mouth every time he uses social media. But this notion of pre-trying the case, exposing potential juries to evidence before the case is tried in the courtroom is pretty dangerous. So The government uses fairly standard forms for protective orders that constrain the parties from talking about the case publicly, require that evidence be used only in the courtroom. And these are so routine. They're imposed in a lot of cases. It's hard to believe um, really many cases go forward that are all but the simplest cases without them these days. And they provide accountability so that if one of the parties exposes that evidence, there are consequences. And in fact, Judge Chutkin entered a protective order today, Friday, um, that was kind of a compromise, I thought. She um, said that uh, it would cover uh, all sensitive materials, including witness statements, uh, grand jury testimony, recordings, and other things, but not everything, not all of the evidence. And to me, that's that's less than a full win for the government, because I could imagine Donald Trump putting out there into the public domain some piece of evidence that is inadmissible and tainting the jury pool. So, you know, she is a, a former defense attorney. And so I think the idea that she's going to be super pro-government and anti-Trump in this case is just wrong. Uh, as a former defense attorney, I, I think I could see her, um, you know, being very fair to uh, to the defendant. So, Kim, let, let's talk about what this is and what this isn't. This is a protective order. Um, is it the same thing as a gag order? No, it is not. I mean, Joyce did an uh, an expert job of explaining exactly what it is. A gag order would be an order that says you cannot speak publicly about the proceedings of this trial until its conclusion. She did not say that at all. And certainly there is a reason why. First of all, in this case, I don't think that it is legally necessary. Secondly, he is a candidate for the presidency, and that would have big First Amendment implications that would cause that would have to be litigated um, in an interlocutory manner, meaning that you would have to pause the trial and appeal that issue up before resuming the trial. That's something that they don't want to do. But she was very clear, and I I thought that it was very smart. Not only was she quick, she ruled this from the bench. She didn't take it away and take it under consideration and rule later. She was ready. To, to give this order. And she did it in a limited way, as Joy said, but she also said something that I thought 
uh, was interesting, which is essentially if uh, cautioning the defense that if they violated this order, not only would could there be repercussions that this is not this case should be tried in the courtroom, not on the internet, she said. But also, the more they did it, the faster the trial date would be set. So basically, they would be shooting themselves in the foot uh, if they violate uh, this order. Now, you know, Trump's attorney said that uh, <laughs> that Trump would quote scrupulously abide by his right. conditions. I saw that. Like, I saw that. That's just laughable, right? <laughs> scrupulously abide by all laws and orders, right? So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, um, Jill, there's got to be a temptation to enter a gag order in this case. Uh, you know, as Kim pointed out, we've got a candidate for president on the one hand, but he keeps making statements. He's talked about the, it's just today, deranged Jack Smith has asked for a January 2nd trial date. He's talked about the jury pool, you know, DC is a filthy city and all these kinds of things. He's talked about the judge and he's talked about witnesses like Mike Pence. At some point, do you think the judge will need to enter a, a gag order? Or is he just, you know, angling for a recusal or a change of venue? You know, can he manufacture a change by, you know, by baiting them and saying these outrageous things himself? I think that Judge Chutkin is smarter than he is and that she will not be forced into an unforced error. Mm. It is going to be tempting to do something, and I think it's essential that there be repercussions. She's already mentioned one, as Kim just said. She said, you keep doing this, and the trial date's going to move up because we're going to have to stop it before mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. uh, jury yep. pool is right. tainted. So that's one thing she can do that would be really fair and present no problems. Will she eventually have to revoke his privileges of freedom and hold him in custody. That would be another thing before a uh, gag order. I don't know which is worse, a gag order or holding him in custody. But he has to be treated like any criminal defendant. And as Joyce started with, this is a routine matter to have a protective order. And every defendant has to be held accountable for violating a protective order. And in this case, we have plenty of reason to know that he will, in fact, do something that's wrong. And I think there have to be consequences. I do not think she can let him keep on doing it over and over and over again, because he is, as you pointed out, making a case in front of the jury that will eventually be seated. And he may get in things that are inadmissible in evidence. Yeah. So um, the other thing I would say is you felt that was maybe a little harsher uh, or against the prosecution but my understanding is that they will be designating what is sensitive information. Mm -hmm. And so that gives them a lot of control over what can and cannot be revealed and what would be a violation. I'm sure that the Trump uh, lawyers will be fighting tooth and nail for every designation and saying, oh, that shouldn't be sensitive information. Uh, but I think we've seen the judge handle this well and so that the there will be fair decisions on what is legitimately sensitive information that should not go before the public. So y'all, yeah, can I just share a data point on something that just happened that I think pops um, Jill's comments into context? Uh, this is Jill's comment about sanctions the judge could impose. And just now there was a bail hearing for the founder of FTX, the crypto guy, Sam Bankman-Fried. Mm -hmm. The judge was convinced in that hearing that he had tried repeatedly to influence witnesses against him, and he revoked his bond. Uh, he will be in prison pending trial. This is what mm -hmm. happens to defendants who try to tamper with witnesses or the jury pool. I hope Donald Trump is paying attention. But you know that, that you're right, Joyce, and that happens in cases all the time. But when Donald Trump is running for president, I could just see him trying to bait her. Like, I am going to go not just up to the line. I'm going to cross the line again and again and again. And I'm just going to dare her to revoke my bond. Because then when she does, he can say, look, I can't get a fair trial. She's trying to cost me the election. How can I campaign? She's the most unfair person on the planet. I think she's in a really tough spot. Do you think that she actually does revoke his bond if he goes too far? 
So look, I totally agree with you that that's what he's going to do. He's going to try to bait her. He's Mm going to try to avoid accountability, and he's going to use it against her. And I notice um, something new, sort of a new tone that prosecutors are striking. For so long, prosecutors and other parties have bent over backwards to try to accommodate Trump and all this foolishness that he does. Yesterday, in this motion on the protective order in D.C., prosecutors took an entirely different approach. They said, listen, we are not buying any of this garbage about Speedy Trial Act being for the benefit solely of the defendant. It's also for the public. Judge, here's how we want you to rule. I, I think that we are about to see a shift. And this judge is a big part of it. She's no nonsense. She does have a pro-defense bias. If you talk to people who try cases in, in front of her, I think that's great in this situation because it means she is scrupulously fair. And when Trump tries to complain about her, it will fall on deaf ears. Although she also has been insistent on calling him Mr. Trump, while his lawyers insist on calling him <laughs> President Trump, which he is not. And they, I think the prosecutors and the judge are onto that. And it's an important message to the public and eventually to a jury. Well, let me move on to another um event that occurred this week. There was the revelation of this kind of missing document. It's referred to now as the Cheesebro Memo. Um, You know, most of the documents referred to in the indictment were already in the public domain from the January 6th House Select Committee hearings. But there was one document that was not previously disclosed that got described there. And the New York Times got a hold of it and described it this week. And so um, it's been written by Kenneth Cheesebro. Um, Joyce, tell us who Kenneth Cheesebro is. How does he fit into all this? Who is Kenneth Chesbro? Barb, that is such a good question. Um, I learned yesterday, so I debated in high school and, and college. Um, you may have mentioned that of, once or twice. I, I, I may have. It's its own little insular um, <laughs> world full of nerdy people. Um, <laughs> Kenneth Chesbro was a debater at Northwestern in college, um, widely known as the cheese. So it's interesting. <laughs> Wait a minute. The cheese? The cheese. Um, the cheese stands alone. that he has <laughs> surfaced. You know, he may well stand alone if he doesn't do the right thing here because he is widely believed to be co-conspirator number five, one of the uncharged co-conspirators uh, in the DOJ indictment of Donald Trump. Um, so here's the deal, and here's why he's an important figure here. Last March, he was subpoenaed by the House January 6th committee. The committee concluded that he was the chief architect of the fake elector scheme that Trump and his allies used to try to stay in power. He has considerable criminal exposure if he does not cooperate with the government. Very interesting, not a, not a you know publicly known name like Rudy Giuliani or the Kraken lawyer Sidney Powell. We will hear a lot more about the cheese in the weeks ahead. <laughs> well, Cheese is the one who took a job at DOJ in December of 2020, after Trump loses the election. And in the waning days of the Trump administration, it always struck me as very odd that somebody would uh, come on board at that time. And so, you know, this memo, I think, helps explain his, uh, his, his function there at DOJ. Kim, tell us about the gist of the memo and, and how it fits into the criminal charges. Yeah, so uh, this is uh, the legal name, I think, for what a memo like this uh, is, a humdinger. (laughs) (laughs) Legal term. Um, Yeah, he essentially, as Joyce said, crafted the whole scheme with this phony elector thing, not just for one state, not making it, you know, individual. It was a five-state plan that he laid out and reduced into writing. And the January 6th committee investigating this did not find it. We only found out about this um, after the indictment uh, through Jack Smith's investigation. And so here's part of it. Here's, Here's the nut graph of this memo, as we say in journalism. It is important that the alternate slates of electors meet and vote on December 14th if we are to create a scenario under which Biden can be prevented from reaching 270 electoral votes, even if Trump has not managed by then to obtain court decisions or state legislative resolutions, remember the independent state legislature doctrine, invalidating enough results to push Biden below 270. That 
is a plan to reverse the election results right there written out in plain English. And not only was it that, it also came with a messaging strategy of what to say in the event that they are caught, which is essentially it's important to say we are just protecting the rights of yeah. uh, the president as he defends these actions while he makes his legitimate appeals to the public. And the result of that, uh, as Cheeseboro, Chesboro, whatever his name is, said, uh, is that it, quote, would guarantee that public attention would be riveted on the evidence of electoral abuses by Democrats and would also buy the Trump campaign more time to win litigation that would deprive Biden of electoral votes and or add to Trump's column. So he basically wants to uh, misinform the public and get them to believe that the Democrats were up to something nefarious and not them. So it's the crime and the cover up all in one memo. I think it's probably one of the best pieces of evidence that the prosecution probably has. So, Jill, do you think this is uh, a, the smoking gun that Kim seems to be referring? But we need a better metaphor for smoking gun because it's got it's the cheese bro memo. I don't know what's what's what, what's cheese? The smelly <laughs> it's cheese? The sharpest the, knife? Oh, the sharpest cheese! <laughs> it's the sharpest the, cheese. There you go. It's the sharp, is this the sharpest cheese? The smelliest cheese, yeah. I would say, because it is smelly. It is definitely smelly, but I don't know that it is smelly enough. Um, Kim has definitely pointed out some of the highlights of it. And some, there are other parts that are just, you know, you go impassable. Like it says, send in the certificates containing their votes in compliance with federal and state laws. Well, they couldn't comply with federal law because they weren't elected and because they didn't have a governor to affirm the legitimacy of their votes. Um, And he does say, which might plausibly be allowed to, go forward some cases. And of course, there was no possibility of anything plausible about the election fraud. They well knew. So to that extent, the whole foundation of it falls apart. Um, They do rely on a case that happened in in Hawaii. And our, our sympathy with anybody who was on Maui or anybody affected by that tragedy. Um, But there was a case during the Kennedy-Nixon election of 1960 where there was a 114-vote difference in favor of Nixon. And he was certified by the governor as the winner. But the Democratic electors, and there are only three from Hawaii, at least back then there were only three, met and sent in their votes as electors because the recount was pending and did eventually affirm that Kennedy was the actual winner of Hawaii. So it's a very different circumstance where you have a legitimately pending recount that ended up overturning it. And it was not only legitimate in the sense that they had found some fraud, but that there were only 114 vote difference in all of these other cases for Trump, the differential was huge. There was never going to be an overturning of the election. But there is some language in an opinion from the court saying that the thing that made them able to submit their votes as electors was that they did meet on the date that was required and submit their uh, electoral votes as required. So there is that little bit, but it is so completely distinguishable from what was going on in the Trump case that I think it's nonsense, although that is probably the most legitimate thing that's in this memo. And I think I would go with Kim's conclusion that this is mostly just nonsense, that there was no way, um, you know, in which she read that part about um, riveted on the evidence of electoral abuses. There was no evidence of electoral abuses abuses. So that's where it all falls apart is, you know, the devil's in the details and the facts matter. And here there were no facts to support their ever believing that they would have a legitimate grounds and everything else pointed to their knowingly doing this for false reasons. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I had a, a former supervisor, a boss, great boss who used to always say a brick is not a wall. 
uh, you know, this is a brick. This is one piece of evidence, yeah. and that if you build enough of them, you have a wall of evidence and enough for a conviction. But you know, it's a trick of defense attorneys to try to pluck out one little piece of evidence and say, there, you know, you lose, you lose, you lose, and look at each one in isolation. But when you pull them all together, it can give an overwhelming impression of guilt. And I think this one is a big brick. So I think it's going to go a long way. Um, well, looking ahead to next week, uh, we are hearing rumblings out of Georgia that next week might be the week that we see Fonnie Willis file charges there. There's uh, a lot of anticipation. Um, what what will you each be looking for there? Let me just do a quick round of, of each of you. Joyce, what are you looking for coming out of Georgia? So uh, I think, you know, all the signs are that we will see an indictment on Monday or Tuesday of next week. So um, everybody buckle up. You know, <laughs> the big question and probably not much question yet is what charges does she indict on? I mm -hmm. think we're now widely expecting uh, a RICO indictment. I was sort of surprised. I was at lunch with friends and one of them said something who's not a lawyer. None of them were said something about RICO um, so casually, uh, <laughs> you know, as though it's like common parlance. I take it back. One of the other women is a civil lawyer. And we then had this conversation about the technical elements of RICO, which Love are it. now dinner table conversation <laughs> in America. Sure. So thank you, Fonnie Willis. I'll be looking to see how limited her RICO charges are. Will she go to other counties like Coffee County in mm -hmm. Georgia and talk about efforts to yeah. interfere with voting machines? Might she go beyond Georgia's borders? I sort of doubt that, but that's a possibility. And also I'm waiting to see which judge gets it. I think that there are 20 active judges in Fulton County. This goes on the wheel. They also have senior judges, and senior judges have the advantage of not having super crowded calendars so they can move a complicated case more efficiently. Because if this is just one indictment, and I've had this question in my mind all along if there might not be more than one indictment in the works because mm. of the large number of players and claims mm -hmm. involved. But if it's just one, a senior judge would have a big advantage in terms of moving the case. So lots of stuff to look for. What about y'all? Yeah, just to build on that, uh, Joyce, you you left off where my biggest thing that I'm looking out for is is whether uh, she indicts multiple people at once or takes the same approach as Jack Smith, which is focus on Trump first, get that done, yeah. and then bring the indictments against the other players later. Because clearly her net is cast wide in terms of uh, potential targets of her investigation. But I wonder if the fact that there is this federal um, indictment already in place after Trump, if that gives her more leeway to go ahead and push forward with other people, or if there is a concern that doing that might not to slow her case down, but also potentially slow down the case against Donald Trump federally. I, I would love your thoughts. So I think the two issues that uh, you two have raised are the really big ones. But there's also the question of, number one, when will this trial get set? Mm -hmm. Will it be after all the other pending cases because it's the last to be indicted? Or is it one that can be tried faster? And so it might get snuck in before all these other cases. And don't forget, aside from his criminal cases in New York and in Florida and in D.C., he has Eugene Carroll's trial coming up. He has uh, several other civil cases coming up. So he's got a pretty busy schedule of legal stuff. And so the trial date becomes very interesting to me. And also, what is the reaction uh, Fannie Willis has given so much notice to prepare for protecting the courthouse, protecting the grand jurors, but by giving that much notice, she also has put them in more danger, I think, in a way. She has given plenty of notice so that people are may react to this final announcement. It's not going to be unexpected. It is expected. And so I'm worried about what the reaction is going to be. And I think we have to watch for that, even though they're prepared for this. Yeah, I, the reaction from the public, certainly, Jill. And you know that Donald Trump is going to go on the offensive, as he always does, going after the prosecutor. Um, and uh, I, I worry that now this will be his fourth indictment. I and mean, who gets indicted four mm -hmm. times in one year? Um, 
he will say, oh, this just proves, you know, they didn't charge me three years ago, but now suddenly when I'm the leading candidate for president, all of a sudden they charge me with four, four indictments. Well, it just takes that long to, to put together those kinds of cases. But I do worry that he will be able to use it as ammunition just to try to show, you know, his own victimhood and grievance. And, and you know, as he loves to say, uh, they're not after me, they're a- after you. And so it's a badge of honor to be indicted for you. And what does that even mean? <laughs> He's not being indicted for the rest of us. The rest of us didn't commit these crimes. So uh, I'll be looking for his his reaction as well. So um, I had a lot of questions for y'all about Clarence Thomas and the latest revelations, but I think we'll set those aside for the moment because Clarence (laughs) Thomas is not going anywhere, although I wish he would. I think lots of people think he no longer belongs on the court. However, um, Hunter Biden, today I think I was on television with Andrea Mitchell when some stunning news broke. Um, Kim, what's going on? What happened to the plea in this case? What are the new developments? Is the case going to go to trial now? Yes. So I uh, was as shocked as you were when this came through, when when Merrick Garland uh, announced he'd be making um, some announcements. I thought it either had something to do with the Jack Smith investigation or the fact that President Biden may be called to be interviewed yeah. uh, in connection with the uh, the classified documents that were found at his home. But no, it was something else. It was the fact that a special counsel, if you are losing track with special counsels, <laughs> you are not alone. Are they but still special spe- if they're that many, Kim? <laughs> they're not so special, <laughs> yeah, are they? Yeah. Not, Good question, not so special Barbara. counsels. <laughs> not so special counsel um, has been appointed in this case. And it's just amazing how we went in such a short period of time from expecting a plea deal to be entered uh, on behalf of Hunter Biden and for all of this to be done to now having a special counsel. And it looks very much like this case is heading to trial. One thing I found that was very interesting is that uh, Attorney General Garland appointed the same U.S. attorney who had been overseeing this investigation already, David Weiss of Delaware. Uh, I would love to hear your take about this. But this clearly means that that plea deal is off the table, and we are likely to see a trial that could encompass not only the misdemeanor tax case that uh, Hunter Biden was facing, as well as the weapons possession charge, but maybe more. And I would love to hear from you all more about what you think might be a part of this. Yeah. So, I mean, Barb, what do you think about it? Why would Weiss ask to be appointed special counsel at this point? Well, we got a little clue later in the day when he filed his motion to dismiss the information. That was the charging document. You know, the word information is a little bit of a weird label. It is essentially an indictment but one where the right to be indicted by a grand jury has been waived and usually used in a plea agreement when a defendant's going to agree to plead guilty. So it's essentially the same thing. It's the charging instrument. He filed a motion with the court to dismiss the information that charged Hunter Biden in those misdemeanor counts that he was planning to plead guilty to. And in the course of it, he had to explain to the court why it was going this route. And what he said is, because this deal is off, part of the deal was that Hunter Biden was going to waive any objection to venue, which is the right to be charged in the district where the crime occurred. For everyone's convenience, we were just going to do this in Delaware. But now that this deal is off, I have to charge these tax offenses in the districts where they occurred. And he said that would either be Washington, D.C. or the Central District of California, which is where Los Angeles is located. So um, to char- for a U.S. attorney to file charges in a district other than their own, they need special counsel status. So it seems to me, you know, and I'm, I'm drawing some conclusions here, but I think they're educated guesses. It appears that they tried to see if they could put this plea deal back together that fell apart last month. Ultimately, he said that they were at an impasse. They could not resolve the guilty plea. And so now David Weiss has asked Merrick Garland, 
um, I am going to need this special counsel status so that I can pursue these charges outside of the District of Delaware. Um, he does refer to them, though, as tax charges. So it sounds to me like maybe there'll be felony tax charges and that misdemeanor cha- tax charges, but he doesn't give any hints about whether there are broader charges afoot, like you know, business fraud or um, money laundering or foreign agent registration. He really does just say tax charges. So it may be that he's just going to go forward with the same case he was going to go forward with in Delaware, but there won't be a guilty plea with it. So not sure, but that's why he would need that special counsel status. I think that you're on to something. I'm not sure this is as ominous as Fox News is going to make it out to be tonight. Because, you know, once David Weiss asks Merrick Garland for permission to become a special counsel, what's Garland going to do in the current political environment? Say no? He can't really say no without setting off a whole bunch of stuff. I think he says yes. To your point, Barb, it gives Weiss the ability to act outside of Delaware, which he clearly Mm -hmm. is going to need since there's no longer a guilty plea um, in the works here, at least not for now. I think guilty pleas have a way of popping back up um, as, as things take off. But what this really says to me is that, you know, DOJ, unlike what it began to look like during the Trump administration, is no longer a creature of the White House. And prosecutors going to decide whether to indict people based on the facts and the law, not based on whose kids you are. Um, so painful for the Biden family. No one loves to see this happen to any individual. Good for the rule of law. You know, this is this is how things are supposed to work. Um, Jill, you have more experience with this, I think, than the rest of us. Can you talk about the powers that a special counsel has? We've talked about this ability to go to any venue that they want to compared to a U.S. attorney. And also this question, if you're going to do this, why does David Weiss get to be the special counsel? Why not just bring in someone totally new? Well, let's start with that second question, because I think it's a fascinating question, Joyce, about why um, it should be, because my understanding of the current rules, which actually give less independence than um, Watergate special prosecutor had, but give considerable independence and could actually end up being, I think, helpful to the case because it's going to be harder to complain that it was done within the Biden Department of Justice, U.S. attorneys subset of the department. It is now an independent special counsel. And so it could actually, I think, be used to show how independent it is. But the rules say it has to be someone from outside of government. And a U.S. attorney is not outside government. So it's a little strange that it is him. On the other hand, he's the one who has all the knowledge, information, and can act the most quickly on this. So it makes sense for it to be him. And I trust the Department of Justice has thoroughly researched and knows how to answer the question of how do you take someone who is a government employee and make them the special counsel? They've done it before, right? I mean, that has happened in some of the other cases, particularly with the Connecticut U.S. attorney, John Durham, who became a special counsel. Right. But he didn't stay as U.S. attorney, did he? Yes, he absolutely did. Did he? Well, then they have figured it out. There's and something there's no- in the regs that lets you do it. It's a little bit squirrely, and my recollection is that we all actually balked a little bit when they did it um, in Connecticut, but that it was technically legitimate. So I guess it's technically legitimate here, I, and Trump set the precedent. But just because you can and, do it, should it was- you do it? Right. I mean, I, I, right. Like, right. Yeah, attorney yeah. is a full-time job. It's more than a full-time job. And so he's supposed right. to be special counsel like while he's also dabbling as U.S. attorney in Delaware. But on the and other if hand, you care if you about- bring somebody brand new in, that person has to get their arms around the case. They have to build right. a team. Absolutely. They have to start from scratch. I think you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. I and think that that's remember, true. there is a statute of limitations issue here. Mm. And so if you bring in someone new and there's a delay – the statute of limitations could become a real problem. So I, I, I mean, I think it makes sense to have the person who has the knowledge do it. And there is a legitimate reason here because of venue. They had it here, but there was really never any nexus between any of the crimes alleged and the state of Delaware. It just wasn't there. And so when you're having a plea, that doesn't matter. You waive that. But if you're not going to plead, then you have to have it in a place where the crime was committed. Um, and, and I would also point out that 
in if he were not named Biden. These are crimes that would not result in criminal charges. When you pay back your taxes that you failed to pay, that usually ends it. When you are a drug addict who has a gun that you get rid of within a week of getting it and haven't committed any crimes with it, you would not be processed for any criminal charges for that possession. So in a way, he's being treated more harshly than he would be if his name weren't Biden. Um, And that's important to keep in mind as well. In terms of the powers, aside from venue, which in this case is clearly uh, at top of mind for a reason why, you go about making your decisions without any input from the attorney general. And then you give a report and he the attorney general then has the decision to make about whether you have so gone beyond the realm of reasonable and fairness uh, and beyond any Department of Justice rules that he would reject it. If he doesn't find that, then he accepts the charging decision, whether it is to charge or to not charge. So I think that it is really that independence of where to take the case and whether it will include FARA, which is a possibility, or felony uh, charges. Maybe there's information we don't know about why he didn't pay his taxes. Um, maybe there's some statement that he was doing it for corrupt reasons. You know, we just we don't know at this point. Um, it seemed like the plea deal to me was a fair one to begin with, and we'll have to wait and see what comes out and what charges are put forward and whether there'll be a diversion of the gun charges or whether he'll actually be charged with that has the the longest prison sentence is for the gun charges. That's a 10 year felony. Um, So that would be significant if they brought charges on that. I was about to say something that might've made sense in normal world, but that sounds dumb in the world that we're actually in, (laughs) which is, you know, it would have, if the, um, institutional reputation of the DOJ was front of mind, I would think that they would have appointed somebody else uh, outside of Weiss and just done everything they could to get them up to speed in order to proceed quickly so as not to, as sort of to thwart any sort of attacks on Weiss as impartial. But I mean, (laughs) whoever it was, they could have appointed, they could have appointed you know, Jesus Christ re- himself. Exactly. And they would attacked <laughs> yeah. him. You know, so Jesus, really Jesus isn't is. so innocent. <laughs> <laughs> you think Jesus is so innocent? What about that walking on the water stuff? I don't know. I you want know, evidence of that water walk. Deep state. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really stupid. So one last quick question. We've touched on it a little bit, but what do y'all think are the political implications of this. Is Joe Biden possibly a defendant based upon what we know? Is he a target or a subject of the investigation? And how does this play in the upcoming election? So I think it could go two ways, or maybe both ways at the same time. I think in one sense, it allows uh, the White House to say, look, this is an independent investigation that's moving forward. We, uh, The president loves his son and uh, you know, wants only the best for him, but realizes that no one is a, a, above the law and the, we're letting the legal process carry out that sort of blunts this idea that it was he was getting special treatment, right? It looks like he's going to trial. He's not getting special treatment. He's being treated more harshly than most people who are alleged to have um, uh, committed a tax violation, as we've pointed out. On the other hand, already, in part because it is Weiss, who is the special counsel, we have seen Republicans come out hammering, saying they want more information, the the fix is in, Um, this is all meant to cover up some sort of nefarious nonsense. Um, And so I think it it can... it can hit both ways in the long run. I think, I'm sure, as uh, the president's campaign moves forward um, and the presidential election nears, his campaign officials probably hate that this is happening because it's going to keep it in the news. It's going to, they thought they were going to put it behind them and that's not going to happen at all. So I think it's, it weighs on both sides. Well, you know, um, I've been researching my book on disinformation And one of the tactics that is used in Russia, that is used by Putin, 
is this idea that you, the goal is not to convince people that Putin is so great. It is to convince people that everybody's corrupt. And anybody who wants integrity or honesty is just a sucker. And so because everybody is corrupt, you should just accept that and be in on the joke. Uh, everything's PR is one of the big phrases there. Um, and so you might as well just go with the person who's going to advance your agenda because they're all a bunch of crooks anyway. And so I think that's very much part of what they're trying to do to Joe Biden here is smear him uh, to diminish any argument that Donald Trump is not worthy of your vote because of his misconduct, because Biden's just as bad. Well, the Republicans are also attacking Weiss and sort of threatening him if he doesn't bring felony charges, if he doesn't indict Joe Biden as well as Hunter Biden, despite the fact that at least publicly, we know of no benefit to Joe Biden or any action he took in connection with his son's business dealings. Um, So they're really going whole hog on this attack and on making it a big deal. I don't see any connection to, in reality, to President Biden. And I hope that we can get past this, but for sure the Republicans will play it for the most benefit they possibly can. And I don't think it's, uh, the timing is just horrible. It's just so suspicious. And it's interesting that just as things are really rolling against Biden, I'm sorry, against Trump, that this happens to bring this into the fold and that we're still at a place where, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, Ivanka and Jared and what they did as government employees during the Trump administration and subsequent to it, and that nothing has been done about them. And it seems to me if you're going to attack the children of the president, um, then you have to look at the conduct that is so obvious for their conduct about patents and a $2 billion investment from the Saudi um, fund. And it's, it's a serious set of political issues that are very troubling, very troubling, and particularly in light of what you're saying, Barb, uh, for disinformation and misinformation. You know, it's such a mystery, right, how that conduct goes uninvestigated by the Biden Justice Department. I will say Biden Justice Department because that's how the Republicans would characterize it for this purpose. Are you so afraid of looking partisan that Jared and Ivanka get a pass? I mean, maybe somebody looked and decided that there was nothing criminal at work here, but it seems like the sorts of things where you might want to take a look. And as you point out, Jill, the distinction is Jared and Ivanka had high-positioned roles in the White House. They weren't like, you know, Billy Carter, the president's 'er ne'er-do-well brother, who was doing whatever he did. Hunter Biden, not a government employee, can't be impeached, even though the Republicans seem hell-bent on trying to impeach Hunter Biden. Um, It really is, I think, a very concerning marker um, for Barb's concerns about disinformation, for the concerns we talk about, about democratic institutions. It is something I think we can't answer today, but we should put a pin in and continue to think about this. As Joyce just mentioned, the institutions of our democracy are being challenged at every point. And it looks to me like state GOP officials are trying to subvert the democratic processes in two different ways that are important for our listeners to know about. One got a lot of attention, that is, in Ohio, where the GOP, facing the likely passage of a state constitutional amendment guaranteeing the right to abortions, forced an August vote to increase the number of votes needed to pass that amendment from 50 to 60% in the hopes of defeating it in November with only 40.1% of the vote. But a similar threat to a majority rule got less attention. It happened in Florida when Governor Ron DeSantis suspended an independently elected state's attorney, adding to a growing list of Democrats he has suspended and replaced with Republicans. 
So because that one got less attention, Kim, I want to start with explaining, first of all, how Florida law allows its governor to suspend independently elected officials. What are the general grounds that he can use for suspending someone who has been elected by the voters of their district? Yeah, so uh, what he did was suspend Dominique Orell, who is a state attorney, the only black woman who is a state attorney, and she was, as you said, elected. She is a Democrat. And we get some um, inkling about what the legal standard is here, because this is not the first time that Ron DeSantis has done this. He did this before uh, with another state attorney named Andrew Warren, um, who he suspended, also a Democrat elected. Um, and the, um, generally speaking, the grounds for suspending someone, an elected official, the governor does have some limited ability to be able to do that. But it's only if there is some sort of wrongdoing that is alleged, like some sort of mismanagement, some sort of um, dereliction of duty, maybe if they've committed a crime, um, if there have been shown some uh, severe incompetence. But essentially here, uh, the evidence is that DeSantis didn't like her. And so he uses his power to remove her. When he did this before, um, a federal judge actually found that it, the move was unconstitutional in violating the state's attorney's rights and sent it back down to Florida, where the Republican-controlled uh, Florida Supreme Court reversed that decision and allowed that um, suspension to stand. So. I suggest the same thing might happen here. Uh, I expect it to with the same Republican control state Supreme Court in place. But I think that federal judge finding is really telling when it comes to not only that there was no basis legally under the standards in Florida, but it also was unconstitutional. Yeah. And I just want to point out that I had uh, Andrew Warren as a guest on iGen Politics and um, he was ruled that his suspension was unconstitutional and that it should happen at the state level. But then when he went to the state, they said, oh, you're too late. So I am hoping that Worrell will learn from Warren's lesson and take her case to the state courts sooner than before. But so, Joyce, let's talk more about the two state's attorneys he suspended because both of them, of course, are Democrats and were replaced by Republicans. And what were the alleged reasons for Warren's suspension, which, in, in, you know, I think it's interesting to know, and for Warren's? Um, and we've seen the executive order lay it all out in the case of Worrell. Um, so what do you think of the reasons that he gave? Is it just his political differences with them? Yeah, so I think Jill touched on this. You know, Andrew Warren was suspended because he refused to enforce anti-abortion law and because of comments that he made about gender-affirming care. Neglect of duty and incompetence is the technical language that DeSantis used in both cases to describe his beef um, with these state's attorneys. By the way, state's attorney is what they call a district attorney in Florida, um, but this is really about policy decisions. With Monique Worrell, the governor ran this campaign against her decisions. He essentially called her soft on crime, tried to blame her for some shooting deaths that occurred where some police officers were shot at and, and for some other cases. Um, and she pushed back strongly. And she said, look, I can't detain people pretrial. I can't charge people unless we have the evidence to move forward on those occasions. So we need to work with law enforcement, with our investigators, but we can't push beyond the bounds of our evidence. Um, Jill, like you say, you know, the problem that Warren ran into was he goes to federal court first. The judge says, no, not going to help you get reinstated. And then he inexplicably waits six months before he goes to state court. So that yeah. does set a little bit of a roadmap in place for Worrell. You know, it's clear what she needs to do if she wants to avoid this suspension. I really liked Warren's comments. He's been very supportive of her. And I think these are good takeaways for our listeners. He called the suspension um, a dark day for democracy in the sunshine state. And then he said, 
It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. Anyone who cares about the rule of law and our commitment to democracy in this state should be extremely frightened by what's happening now. At bottom to me, this is frightening. I am frightened to see what looks like autocracy in the works in Florida. Both of these state's attorneys duly elected by the people. The governor doesn't just get to say people of Florida or people of these counties. I'm going to set aside your vote. And that, I think, is a disturbing trend. You know, we've got this um, legislation in other states that could let this happen. And it really is a problem. Yeah. And and that brings us really to Barb. I want to get your opinion because you, of course, are the one who's looking at autocracy and disinformation, misinformation. And, um, you know, this is a case where uh, DeSantis referred to Warren as a Soros-backed candidate, uh, which is, of course, his it's, it's anti-Semitic, but it is also just totally out of line because he was elected by the people. And, um, and of course, he replaced them with Republicans in places that voted Democratic. And as has been noted, Worrell is a black woman, the only uh, one who is a state's attorney. And by the way, Illinois also calls them state's attorneys. Um, and both are from the fourth and fifth most populous places in Florida, from Orlando and from Tampa. And um, it's it's really is taking away the voters' votes. And so we're looking at the same thing that Ohio tried. And um, I, I want to find out from you whether you think this use, and it's not just these two, he's also suspended sheriffs and mayors and members of boards of education. And all of whom, except I think there was one who was a Republican who was committed who committed a crime, which is probably a legitimate reason to remove someone. Um, but so, do you agree with Debbie Wasserman Schultz that it is the weaponization of government and a direct affront to voters? And is this one of those things that should be left up to voters, not to the governor? Yeah, you know, as Kim pointed out, this language is in the Florida Constitution. And it, it, it appears to be there as a protection for voters. If somebody gets put in office who commits a crime, or I think it talks about habitual drunkenness, uh, dereliction of duty, then there is a remedy and the governor can remove that person for this kind of misconduct in office. But I don't think it appears to me to have been intended for just policy disagreements or political disagreements uh, and to oust him. And so it's a really interesting dynamic, I think, between local government, you know, these are people elected at the county level versus at the state level, because DeSantis can get elected statewide if you look at the total voting population of the state. But within these little counties, and large counties, uh, the majority of voters chose these, uh, these prosecutors. And so he is kind of using uh, his brute force of the power of the state to oust people that he doesn't like at this smaller level of government unit at the county. But I I agree that this is a terrible abuse of democracy and the voters' rights to choose who they want to be as their elected prosecutors. I I guess the remedy here is, is, as Joyce was discussing, to to bring a lawsuit in the state courts um, and get some decision. But the language in the Constitution might be broad enough for him to abuse his power in this way. It, it might actually allow it. And so uh, I think that you know what, what, what happened in Ohio is in stark relief to this, where they, the voters rejected the ability to make it harder to amend their Constitution. I mean, be careful of the power that you give to your leaders, because uh, if you give them a, a little bit of, a, of an opening, they might walk right through it. And so, you know, kudos to the voters of Ohio from ceding some of their power um, to government officials. And this is an example of how someone who has a little bit of power can wield it in a way that is against the best interests of the people.
we have reached what is truly our favorite part of the show is when you all ask us questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com. If you are using Twitter or X or whatever that place is called now, you can tweet us or X us, like what is it, using <laughs> hashtag sistersinlaw. And if you're on threads, don't forget to tag at sistersinlaw.podcast or any of the four of us, because the hashtag alone doesn't work the same on threads. So we won't be able to find your question as easily. But if you tag us at any of those five places, we will see your question and keep an eye out on your threads feeds or X feeds or XC. Well, I don't know what that place is called anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> and we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. So our first question comes from O. And the question is, regarding the background checks needed for all parties in the classified documents case in Florida, what background checks uh, does Judge Cannon need to undergo in order to be cleared to review the documents in the case? Does she need to pass such clearances? And if she does not, what happens? That's a great question. Barb, do you know? I do. Um, oh, um, judges do not need security clearances. You know, they go through a very rigorous background investigation when they get nominated to become a federal judge. And all of that background information, the FBI does a background uh, check. It gets shared with um, DOJ. It gets shared with the people who are going through the confirmation process in the Senate. And so that covers it because the idea is that as a judge, they may in the course of their duties need to do that. Um, and so they don't have to go through a separate clearance process by becoming confirmed as a judge. They have the ability to review all classified information, which be comes in handy because from time to time they have to deal with classified information in their cases. All right. And our next question comes from Karen in Chicago, Illinois, who asks, in a normal trial, someone who is a victim of a defendant obviously can't be on a jury, but given the civil rights count on the January 6th federal indictment, isn't every voter in America a victim? Isn't that the point of the argument? And in such case, how can anyone who voted in 2020 be on the jury? Jill, as a fellow Chicagoan, what do you think? I love this question, Karen. Thank you for asking it. I had never thought of that, although I thought of everyone being a victim as a reason to allow cameras in the courtroom because victims do get to see trials where they are the victim. But in this case, because the trial is set for D.C., which was not one of the states uh, or jurisdictions in which the fake electors were tried, it means that the vote wasn't taken away from members of the potential jury pool in D.C. If this was being tried in Michigan or one of the other named states, that might have been a bigger problem. Um, although it depends, I think, to some extent on how broadly you define the rights that were being deprived, because all of us have a right to have all votes counted so that we get whoever is the nationally elected person. Uh, but I think in this case, it will be okay for jurors in the District of Columbia to sit on this jury. And our final question comes from Threads from Jay Kutcher, uh, who asks, if Trump is convicted of a crime, would a person of his status be jailed while pursuing his appeals? Huh? I thought that when someone is convicted and sentenced, they are required to serve their sentence while appealing. A lot of media outlets are assuming that even if convicted or sentenced, Trump will not go to jail because he will appeal. But is that correct, Joyce? This is a great question. And there's a statute for that. 18 U.S. Code 3143 answers this question. Once a defendant is convicted at trial, there's a presumption that they should be taken into custody pending an appeal. But there's an exception. If you have a defendant who can establish that they're not a danger to the community or a flight risk, and if they can establish the following things about their appeal, then they can get what's called an appeal bond and, and remain out pending the decision by the Court of Appeals, which, by the way, can be a long time. It can even be a matter of years in some cases. To get there, though, a defendant has to be able to show that the appeal is not being taken simply for the purposes of delay, 
and also that there's a substantial question that's likely to result in either a reverse a reversal of their conviction an order of a new trial or a sentence that involves no jail time. So a very high burden for a defendant to meet before they can get there. You know, the one thing that I will say is that in practice, you see this applied more in the cases of white collar defendants than you do in other cases. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, Jill Weinbanks, and me, Kim Atkins-Store. And remember, you can send your questions by email to sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet them, X them, do your thing using hashtag <laughs> Sisters in Law for next week's show. Please support this week's sponsors, Hold On Bags, Olive in June, Helix, and HelloFresh. You can find their links in our show notes. Please support them as they really make this show happen. And don't forget to go to politicon.com slash merch to buy this wonderful, soft, cuddly, comfy t-shirt that I'm wearing and much, much more. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. And please give us five stars in the review because it really helps other people find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. When I say exes, it reminds me of that L. King song. <laughs> exes and oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Like, oh, 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 they want me. Yeah. <laughs>